Welcome once again to At Home in Your Hymnal. This is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. At Home in Your Hymnal is a program designed to help you be, are you ready for this? At Home in Your Hymnal. Eureka! It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) To be be at home, to be comfortable, to be familiar. Uh, When you come into God's house and uh, you sing the hymns and you sing and pray the parts of the liturgy, to be familiar, to be at home with them, we we are doing our best to walk our way through Divine Service Setting 1 and with today's program, episode 28, we're going to be looking at a very, very familiar part of the program, an ancient part of the liturgy, that part that is called the Sanctus. Pastor Moline, welcome, and what does the word Sanctus or Sanctus or however American lips want to say it, what does that word mean? Yeah, Sanctus comes from the Latin, and uh, it's a fancy way in the Latin, I guess, of saying the word holy. And it's the uh, word that uh, we get lots of our English words from as well, words like sanctify or sanctimonious. Even the words saint itself comes from that Sanctus word. Uh, And so all these words that have uh, relation to the word holy uh, come from that. In the Greek, then, it's a translation from the Greek word uh, hagia, which is then like in uh, uh, Istanbul, they, the uh, great church built by Justinian in the 7th century AD is the Hagia Sophia or Holy Wisdom Church. And so Hagia in the Greek, Sanctus in the Latin, and uh, both those words have affected a lot of how our English language uh, has come into existence in regard to the church. Excellent, excellent. So so to set the stage, we've been uh, working our way through Divine Service Setting 1 and teaching about the liturgy of the church. We've been using the specific parts of Divine Service Setting 1 in Lutheran Service Book, page 151 and following. The Sanctus is on page 161. Now, much of what we're talking about and much of what we're teaching here is uh, applicable to all of the divine services, the structure, the format, the rhythm, and the flow. And we're specifically listening to and uh, working through the texts of Divine Service Setting 1. Each one of the liturgies has uh, different tunes. Sometimes the words are just a little bit different to fit those tunes as well. So uh, what you heard uh, coming into the program today is the Sanctus from Divine Service Setting 1, page 161. And when I look at my hymnal pastor... I see a reference to Isaiah 6, verse 3, and Matthew 21, verse 9. Uh, would, uh, would you be so willing as to uh, take us into those Bible passages? And I really think if we're going to be, if we're going to be uh, fair to the context of what we're talking about here, I think we probably should begin with Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. Yep, that's not a problem. And, uh, you know, as we go into this, just remember this is one of the most ancient parts of the church uh, service, especially uh, this Isaiah 6 passage uh, talking about during the time that King Uzziah died. Uh, This is in the... uh, 
7th and 8th centuries, somewhere in that area, B.C., that these words are being recorded by Isaiah. Uh, and so this uh, particular song goes all the way back then, and it is even used, we have recorded for us, uh, by a guy named Serapion, uh, who died in 360 A.D., and so all the way up into the early 4th century is when this particular hymn is being used in the church. So Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So, holy, 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 who is actually singing the holy, holy, holy in that Isaiah 6 text, Pastor? Well, it's being sung... um, First off, by the seraphim, the six-winged angels, the four who sit around the throne of God. And then by extension, and we see this, I guess, in the, the book of Revelation as well, this is also being sung by the entire company of heaven, angels, archangels, and the entire company of heaven, which uh, is, to use which our is, liturgical words. Which is what we talked about in our previous episode, episode 27, where we talked about the proper preface and the theological significance of that in the structure of the worship service. We are getting ready to receive the very body and blood of Jesus in, with, and under bread and wine. The holy God is coming to an unholy people in the same way that Isaiah uh, tries to approach a holy God, and he really can't because he realizes his sinfulness. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. The, uh, the holiness of God, the presence of God is very clear. Even, even the way that what happens to Isaiah to take care of his sin that, is the exact same as what's about to happen in the divine service. That's what, I, that's what I want you to talk about because God solves the problem. Yeah. God solves the problem in Isaiah 6 for Isaiah, and now he solves the problem for us. Connect that for us, Pastor. Well, so Isaiah realizes his sin, and he confesses it. Uh, Woe to me, a man of unclean lips. And God takes care of it by sending an angel, a messenger, to take from the altar a burning coal and to touch it to his lips. And when that altar uh, burning coal touches his lips, then his sin is forgiven. And there's so many connections that are there. 
uh, going on, I guess maybe to make it most simple for our radio listeners, we have to think about what actually happens on an altar. An altar is a place where a sacrifice is made. An animal is killed, placed on wood on the altar, and then burned as a uh, sacrifice to God to forgive sins. And so we see an altar in heaven, and we have to ask the question, what is it that is sacrificed on the altar of heaven so that our sins can be forgiven? And the answer there is Jesus, the lamb who was slain, um, that uh, we see also then pictured in the book of Revelation. John John 1, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this coming together. Yep. So uh, the... Jesus is slaughtered, if you will, on the cross, the altar for us and for our forgiveness. And we see a picture representing that uh, in heaven here in this particular altar. And the angel takes a burning coal from that altar where Christ's body and blood, if, if we will, following the picture, is offered and sacrificed, and he touches it to Isaiah's lips. And now we're singing this song right before we go to the altar in our sanctuary where Christ's body and blood is placed there on the altar and is brought, in fact, to our lips, to touch our lips, uh, to be placed into our mouths so that by eating we may receive forgiveness, life, and salvation, uh, having faith in these words, given, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. All these things are the same sort of picture going on so that we might understand what's happening um, as we are uh, partaking in the Lord's Supper. Even the the reality of um, the part inside the altar rail of the church sanctuary is the holy of holies, if you will, and we come and kneel at it, uh, unable to enter in until that um, food is placed onto our lips. This whole idea is is one idea that's being carried through. So the, the question that I have always had with this pastor, and maybe you can uh, help me and help our listeners as well, when when God sends the angel to get the hot coal from the altar and takes it and presses it against Isaiah's lips. Is this because Isaiah had just said that he was a man of unclean lips, and so God applies that to his lips uh, with a specific forgiveness of sins? Is this applied to his lips to cleanse his lips because God is going to have him as a prophet who will speak with his lips the uh, mysteries and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is this uh, touched to his lips because of a foreshadowing of the holy meal where God will touch to our lips the very body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper? Is uh, uh Help me out here. Well, I think all of those are true, and there's maybe the trouble is if we're trying to limit it to just one of those scenarios, then we've got a problem. God is uh, beyond our comprehension, and so when God's doing something like this, all these things are true. Even, I would say, I mean, this is the altar in heaven where Christ is offering his body and blood for our forgiveness. I mean, this burning coal, if, if I slaughtered a sheep and placed it on wood and set it on fire and then later got a burning coal from that fire— the likelihood is is that burning coal has had blood and flesh that has uh, been burned that has touched it in some way, shape, or form. And so it's the holiness of God in Jesus Christ that is hereby cleansing Isaiah, and that's the same thing that's happening in the Lord's Supper as well. We're being holified, uh, made sanctusi, if you will, uh, by the blood and flesh of Jesus Christ being put into our mouths. And... Um, 
it's an amazing miracle that's beyond our comprehension, and I can't explain to you how it happens, but I can tell you that is the exact truth, what God wants us to understand here. Well, if all three of those things are true, Pastor, and I sincerely believe they are, but if all three of those things are true, then anybody who would say that the Lord's Supper is merely a symbolic meal uh, is shortchanging the fact that the forgiveness of sins is actually happening right here uh, by God for Isaiah. And if this is a picture of what happens in the Lord's Supper, that is teaching us that the Lord's Supper can never be only a symbolic meal. It is truly a means of grace where God is bringing forgiveness to the individual. And even I think we could take the words of Jesus from John's Gospel again, uh, where he says, uh, He's washing the disciples' feet, and Peter says, oh, you'll never wash my feet. And he says, if I don't wash your feet, then you'll never be clean. And then Peter, you know, always smart, smart, right? He has better words than Jesus, always, yes. Um, He says, well, then wash my hands and my face as well. And Jesus says, no, if I just wash your feet, your whole self is clean. And so even with this, if I just... uh, to take Isaiah, burn your lips, your whole self is clean. The same reality is true there as well. And then it's true for us in the Lord's Supper. If we eat Christ's body and blood, our whole self, body, soul is clean. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Uh, Thanks be to God. That's uh, Psalm 51. Uh, We need to take a short break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal, episode 28. We're looking at the Sanctus, and uh, when we come back, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 4. So if you want to get out your Bibles and follow along, please do. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNA. LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're looking at Divine Service Setting 1, walking our way through the liturgy of the church. The Sanctus on page 161 in Divine Service Setting 1, Lutheran Service Book, is the topic for this episode, episode 28. We we looked at... uh, the, the way that the Sanctus fits into the worship service, and specifically, we read from Isaiah 6, 1-7. to In a moment, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 4, another place where this holy, holy, holy song is recorded for us in Scripture. Before we do that, I want to read just a few words from uh, Pastor John Fram's Uh, The Divine Service, It's History and Theology, a great little book, a great little Bible study. And on page 78 of his book, he talks about the Sanctus, and he writes, The Sanctus is also among the more ancient elements of the liturgy, with roots in the Old Testament and the prayer life of the Hebrews. Sanctus is Latin for holy. The Sanctus is actually made up of two songs, 
one from Isaiah 6 and the other from Matthew's account of Palm Sunday. The combination of these two songs from Scripture in the context of the Lord's Supper is particularly profound. The Sanctus is one of the most awe-inspiring songs of the divine service order. The glory of the vision in Isaiah with the seraphim, combined with the humble procession of joy on Palm Sunday, catechized the congregation week after week in the joining together of heaven and earth in the divine service, especially in the Lord's Supper. In many ways, the Sanctus provides a counterpoint to the Gloria in Excelsis in the two main sections of the divine service. Pastor, first time you've heard these words, uh, your thoughts and your reaction on Pastor Fram's uh, comments. Well, I think he's right um, in the sense this is continually catechizing God's people on what's going on, and uh, it's an important thing to have that happen again and again. I think it's in the uh, preface to the large catechism where Martin Luther says uh, what... uh, smart guys we are that we think in one read-through we can learn what God never stops teaching us. And that's, I think, in paragraph 16, and it's kind of my own paraphrase of what he's saying. Um, But um, that's the reality. Every week we need to be reminded what's happening in the divine service, especially in this particular part where Christ's giving us his body and blood, the entire body and each morsel of bread, the entire blood and each sip of wine, so that we might have forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation uh, given to us and bestowed upon us. It is heaven on earth in that regard. And I think this is really, really important for our hearers to remember and understand part of how you are at home in your hymnal. You know, when you when you go to church on a regular basis, it's very, very easy for Satan to work and for everything to become kind of a vain repetition or you get bored with the roteness of what's going on. And when you, when you hear and when you see and you understand that God through his word is continually catechizing us on what is going on here. This is not uh, a part of the service that we sing just because it's old. This is not a part of the service that we sing just because we don't want the service to get over too soon. This is God at work teaching us that the holiness of God is here, right here and right now in the God-man Jesus Christ who comes to us riding, not on a donkey, and we'll get to that uh, Palm Sunday um, section of scripture in our next section, but comes to us riding on bread and wine. Uh, what an awesome picture and what an awesome gift for us. I told our hearers that we were going to look at Revelation chapter 4, and uh, Pastor, it's a short chapter, and rather than just reading one or two verses, would you uh, be so kind as to read uh, all of chapter 4, 11 verses? After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashings of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So here, Pastor, we see a marvelous vision of heaven, uh, a vision that is too brilliant for my simple brain to comprehend. It is, a, in many respects, a symbolic vision because we got creatures and eyes. we got all this stuff going on. Um, we have the 24 elders. We have the worship of God going on. And the song that is sung in Revelation 4 is the exact same song that they were, that the uh, uh, angels were singing in Isaiah 6. What do we make of that? Well, I guess we better sing the song to us all the better because it's uh, choir practice for when we kick the bucket and are in heaven with God, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it is a amazing picture, and it's not... It's difficult. We couldn't, like, draw this picture because some of the things that we are having revealed to us are beyond human comprehension, but we can imagine it in our mind, all these things happening at once, and how glorious and holy uh, this particular vision is, and that's the reality of what's taking place in our divine service each week when we have the Lord's Supper, um, angels, archangels, holy, 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 rainbow, and uh, the image of God there. All these things are the reality of what's taking place behind the scenes, if you will, during our divine service. And so when we understand that, that kind of takes away that apathy that we have. Oh, we're just singing holy, holy, holy again. Uh, it takes away that apathy because we realize what's really going on. God is really coming to us. We really are in heaven, at least for a few moments. And uh, this is the reality of where we soon will enter into forever. And the joy and the, the peace and the comfort that will come about from being in the presence of God uh, is ours, at least for a moment as well, that comprehension. It's, it's pretty amazing to think about, and this is why so much of what we do is done reverently and deliberately and carefully uh, so we might uh, understand that reality. The, uh, the, the reality here is that we don't have the time in this program at Home in Your Hymnal to do an in-depth study of Revelation 4 or the book of Revelation. Uh, 
that maybe that's something we need to put in the hopper for some future time. But there are two things, Pastor, uh, in Revelation 4 that I want to address and ask you uh, to comment on. In the song of the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, then is said, who was and is and is to come. The significance of that descriptor of our holy, holy, holy God as the one who was and is and is to come. Yeah, uh, it is uh, an important phrase that happens several times in the book of Revelation, and it is uh, a way of teaching us the Trinity. Um, The God who was and is and is to come is the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is a way of trying to get us to wrap our minds around the reality that there are three persons in the Godhead and yet only one God, and that the Father is not the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the Father nor the Son, and yet they are all one God uh, united together in the one substance as well. And so it's it's... It's hard to get a mind around that, and so the uh, uh, the author here, uh, John, uh, writes for us the one who is and was and is to come so that we can see those three people in that one Godhead uh, by using the same verb in different tenses, and uh, it's kind of a neat way to bring about that idea of the Holy Trinity. In the same way that Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 are united with the Holy, Holy, Holy song, it seems to me that Exodus 3, where God reveals himself and his name to Moses as the great I Am, Yahweh, yes, is connected here in Revelation 4. We're talking the same God because... And the same verb. The, yeah. the verb Yahweh literally means was, is, and is to come. Am I right? Well, yeah. The the verb in the Hebrew there, um, uh, and I can't quote it off the top of my head here real quick, but that's what it, it means uh, when, G, when God says, I am that I am. That's what he's saying, the one who was and is and is to be. He's meaning existence uh, is me. The very reason that there are existence, that you exist existentially, and all this is because God has made you, and you exist and move and have your being within him. And in the Greek then, too, in that verse, it's the same idea. Ha'en kai ha'on kai ha'erkomenos, the one who was and is and is to come. We have and live and and move and have our being, existence, within the reality that there is a God who has made us and called us into existence and continues to call us into existence, and as we see in Revelation, for all eternity. And uh, your, your comments there, we're running out of time on this section, but your comments there about he always has been, he is, and he will be, he's the one that we owe our existence to. The last half of verse 11 in Revelation 4 emphasizes God as creator, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Again and again and again, we see in Scripture the emphasis on this holy, holy, holy God who is our creator, and not only the creator of me, but the creator of all things. Christians today want to want to sell out on creation. They want to they want to sell out to the so-called scientific world and scripture will not allow us to do that. Right. Our God is a creator God. And they I mean they even ask the questions, you know, like okay, then fine. 
where was God before the creation? They don't realize that time itself, uh, the you know, even physicists talk about the fabric of space-time. Time itself is a part of the creation that God has made and exists within his reality, which is beyond time and beyond comprehension. Amen, amen, amen. We need to take a short break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal, episode 28. We're looking at the Sanctus, and when we come back, we're going to examine Matthew 21. Matthew 21, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. This week's church service is more than hymns and a sermon. Get a more in-depth study of this week's message with Pastor Poppy and Pastor Moline on Proclaiming the One. Tune in Sundays at 12 p.m., Wednesdays at 11 a.m., Fridays at 11 a.m., and again at 6 p.m., and Saturdays at 10 a.m. For past episodes on demand, go to thecross957.org backslash proclaiming the one. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come visit us anytime. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 for divine service with uh, Sunday School for All Ages in between. We also worship every Wednesday evening at 630, 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln, Nebraska. You can also listen live on KNNALP 95.7 in and around Lincoln, or check us out on the website, visit our archives, www.thecross957.org. We love your feedback and uh, especially the comments on At Home in Your Hymnal. Thanks for listening and thanks for your uh, uh, gracious, gracious comments on our program. When uh, we're looking at the Sanctus, when we sing the Sanctus, Holy, 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 we're joining the song of Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation 4, but we've also heard several times the connection to Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphant entry, uh, Matthew 21, and uh, just before we have uh, Pastor Moline read those words, I want to share some words from the book Lutheran Worship, History, and Practice. It's an essay by Charles Evanson, pages 422 and 423, and he writes, the liturgical text of the Sanctus is built on the opening verses of Isaiah 6, adding God to Lord, heaven to the reference to earth, and the festal Hosanna in the highest. The Benedictus is Psalm 118.26, by which we greet the Lord who comes to us in his body and blood. The scripture passage was retained in Lutheran liturgies, but was omitted in Reformed churches, 
which rejected the doctrine of the bodily presence of Christ in consecrated bread and wine. Pastor, I thought that that section was significant, and we've been pointing out that you know when you go to a Christian church and worship, there's a lot of similarity in churches that use the liturgy. But in the proper preface, there are things different in Lutheran churches than they are in Reformed and Roman Catholic churches, uh, things that emphasize what we believe, teach, and confess as Lutheran Christians. The same thing is true here in the Sanctus. What is said, what is retained, and when you go to other churches, what is omitted, because we are emphasizing the body and blood of Jesus really present in, with, and under bread and wine. Your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that's the exact truth, and that, how do I say it the right way? I think that's impressive that the things we've retained are what's exactly in Scripture, because that's what the norming norm of our faith is. That's how we know what is true and what is not true, is by what God says to us in his holy word. And so it's no surprise to us then that uh, we are bringing God's word and singing it and participating in it when we are uh, uh, singing the Sanctus or other parts of our liturgy. And it is further testimony to me that God's word, doctrine— and what we do in the, in the church service, in the divine service, practice, are intimately related. Lutherans worship like Lutherans. And people who don't believe that Christ is present in the bread and the wine, and that it is only bread and wine, certainly aren't going to recite, sing, or emphasize the parts of Scripture that would tend to teach that very thing. They're just forgotten or omitted. I think this is extremely significant for us. Um, we need to get into Matthew 21, or we're not going to have time to cover it in this chat in this section. And Pastor, I'd like for you to read Matthew 21, 1 to 11. <clears throat> now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. There you have it. Matthew 21. And uh, had Pastor Moline read verses 1 through 11. Set the stage for us, Pastor. Uh, when is this in the life of Jesus and what's going on here? 
Well, this is um, this is Palm Sunday, which is uh, one week before the day that he'll be resurrected from the dead. So it's the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, it's right after Lazarus has been raised from the dead uh, in the village of Bethphan, uh, Bethany. Uh, and Bethphage is uh, opposite Jerusalem, right on top of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus is going to ride down the Mount of Olives and into the Temple Mount, uh, into Jerusalem, in fact, uh, on this day. And this begins then some of his most intense preaching and teaching uh, right before the Passover when he'll be arrested, uh, betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles, and crucified and killed then on Good Friday. So lots of important events going on this at this particular time. Okay, so we have, we have Palm Sunday. Jesus, uh, especially in the Gospel of Luke, end of chapter 9, has set his face resolutely on going to Jerusalem. He's here. He's entering in. And uh, before, we, before we get into what the people are singing as Jesus comes in, because that's a very, very significant part of our Sanctus, uh, liturgically in the church, this gospel reading is read two times in the church year. Uh, very, very unusual in the one-year series that we would have the same section in two different places. This is the gospel reading for the first Sunday in Advent, and this is the gospel reading for Palm Sunday. Um, why, Pastor? Why the emphasis of this section of Scripture? We know the Palm Sunday. This is, this is the historical day when it happens. Why the Advent connection, and how does that connect us back to the Sanctus and what's going on here? Well, it has to do with what Jesus' actions are doing. He is riding into Jerusalem for the very purpose of rescuing all of us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. We see this in that great hymn, Ride On, Ride On, in majesty and lowly pomp, Ride On to Die. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's riding into Jerusalem knowing what's going to happen to him and knowing that's the way that he will save all people from their sins. And so uh, we sing it at, at Advent, too, because that's the bigger picture. Why is Jesus coming to earth? Why is he becoming man? Why is he being born of the Virgin Mary? Why is he laid in swaddling cloths in a manger in Bethlehem? He's doing that all because he's coming for the purpose of dying. That's his express purpose, not just to be your homeboy or your friend, uh, not to be a good moral teacher. He comes to bleed and to die. And so that picture at Advent uh, and then also in Holy Week is important for us to remember what God's ultimate purpose is and what he's coming for. That then uh, spills over into what we're having in the Lord's Supper. We're having the body and blood of Jesus Christ that hung on a cross, the, the blood that was poured out onto the earth, that was uh, the body that was laid into a tomb, and the body that resurrected to live forever. That's the body and blood that we're eating. You know, I, it's the only living things we really eat, right? Um, you know, I know that there's even places where you drink minnows or whatever to show how manly you are. Once the minnow gets in your stomach, it's not living anymore. <laughs> but Jesus is alive forevermore. So when you eat that little piece of bread and drink that wine, you're eating the living Jesus Christ and drinking the blood flowing through his veins, and they stay alive forever within you. And that's the, kind of a neat thing to think about. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. That is, uh, that is a promise sealed with the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So, uh, Pastor, the people cry out to Jesus. Matthew 21, 
verses 8 and following. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. First of all, where do these words come from and why are the people singing these particular words? Well, um, the word Hosanna um, is kind of a word used to express adoration, praise, or joy. It's, it's a word that, um, that you say to show how happy you are at what's happening. And so these people definitely are happy uh, that Jesus is coming to be their king. At least they think they are, even though they don't quite understand what that all means in terms of his coronation upon the cross, crowning with thorns, uh, and even uh, the uh, scepter that he is supposed to hold is instead used to beat him uh, about the head. And so we have this idea, but this is then um, fulfilling um, Psalm 118, I believe, can you tell me if I'm wrong on my psalm number? No, you you are uh, you are exactly correct. Is it verse? Let me try and find it here. Verse 25, where we say, "25 and Save 26. us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar." Uh, you are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That psalm, then, is being fulfilled in Jesus going into Jerusalem. Even the uh, bind him with the festal cords, what's going to happen? He's going to be sacrificed for the sins of the entire world. The uh, the way the sacrifices worked, you had, you had handles or horns on the altar, and and uh, believe it or not, the animals didn't necessarily voluntarily jump up on the altar so you could slit their throat. They had to be bound on the altar to the horns of the altar as they were slaughtered. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who freely and willingly is sacrificed for the sins of the world. Beautiful, beautiful picture. Hosanna, save us now. So what does Jesus do? He saves us now. Thanks be to God. We need to take a short break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. We're looking at the Sanctus. We'll come back and conclude our study of this integral part of the worship service in just a moment. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We are working our way through Divine Service Setting 1. We're at uh, the Sanctus on page 161 in Lutheran Service Book. We've uh, looked in great detail at Isaiah 6, at Revelation 4, Matthew 21, and now we want to try to tie a ribbon around everything that we've talked about here so far. The, uh, the text, which is always sung, it's never spoken. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, We've had little snippets, uh, bits and pieces of this particular text that we have have heard. And uh, right now, at this point in time, uh, so it's fresh in your memory, I want to play the uh, Sanctus for us and get it in your brain. Pastor, we have many musical settings of the Sanctus that have come to us over the years. I know you've done a lot of work with uh, uh, ancient histories, classical music, uh, Bach, and some of the contemporaries there. Is there anything that comes to your mind with this particular part of the worship service, this particular particular section of God's Word that is of great historical significance for us? Well, um, I mean, we could go back a long ways. We've already talked a little bit about Isaiah, and when he sees this picture of heaven, uh, and it's uh, you know several centuries before the collapse and fall of um, of Israel and Judah. In fact, uh, uh, just a little while before Israel collapses, and then not long before Judah does. And so we have that great history all the way back to that time when these words were first heard and sung uh, in heaven. We have other places where scripture is seen, and it is uh, uh, brought to uh, remembrance, or at least the reality of these things happening. We could talk about uh, the the life of St. John, who sees these words again when he sees heaven, uh, and he is in Patmos, uh, exiled for being a Christian apostle. Uh, they had tried to boil him to death according to church tradition and uh, had failed at boiling him to death, which is why he was exiled instead of just killed. And um, God kept him alive for the purpose of writing Revelation and the Gospel of St. John. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of things. Historically speaking, these words have been sung in many different ways, in different settings, in different formats. We even have the different uh, setting that we have uh, in each of our um, settings of the divine service. For example, divine service setting three perhaps is familiar to many people, which is the more Anglican version of it, uh, Anglican chant, holy, holy. Uh, I'm sure many people know those words and the way they're sung. And in divine service four, these words are set to a more contemporary hymn, Holy, holy, holy Lord God of Sabaoth, adore. Right, and so perhaps there's a lot of ways to set these particular words to music. And perhaps the one that we ought to know that we don't, to our own shame and and sadness, is hymn 960 in your hymnal, which is uh, the version written by Martin Luther, uh, Isaiah, mighty seer in days of old, uh, which is a, a really great hymn that is hard to sing because it doesn't repeat the tune ever. It's um, it's one that just keeps going forward and has continuation of uh, the musical text. And in, uh, in our hymnal, Divine Service Setting 5, which is 
basically certain uh, parts of the liturgy that are put to hymnic uh, words or hymnic tunes, the Sanctus is replaced by hymn 960. Pastor, I don't want to put you on the spot. Can It's a real short little ditty here. Can uh, can you sing this for our, for our listeners? Uh, no, not the whole thing. Uh, I don't have it memorized. The first part I could probably do. Okay. Um, Isaiah, mighty seer in days of old, the Lord did all in spirit did behold. See, I can't even do that part very well. I sang it in choir a long time ago, but it it is difficult to sing. It's one that probably is a better choral setting um, for choirs to learn to teach to the congregation. And uh, that's one of the great ways to learn new and difficult hymns to expand our hymnology, hymnody, uh, so that uh, we can sing more and more of them. If the choir can learn it and teach it to the congregation by singing it regularly, uh, that's a real blessed way to learn hymns. So that is uh, that is a challenge for our hearers, uh, not only here at Good Shepherd, but uh, wherever you are, to learn this great hymn of Luther, and it might be a way to uh, have an alternate setting and uh, have the choir or a children's choir sing this. I've heard kids sing this. I, I was going to say, I know it's learnable. Kids learn it really, really easily, and all these—that's the beauty of Martin Luther um, and all of his great hymns. Uh, they were taught to children who could pick them up very quickly, and then would be able to sing them even when they're old. And maybe that's where we need to do to learn this hymn is to teach it to our children, so that the next generation can have this great jewel of the church's music that we don't have today. Uh, LSB 960 goes like this. Isaiah, mighty seer in days of old, the Lord of all in spirit did behold, high on a lofty throne in splendor bright, with robes that filled the temple courts with light. Above the throne were flaming seraphim. Six wings had they, these messengers of him. With two they veiled their faces as with right. With two they humbly hid their feet from sight. And with the other two aloft they soared, one to another, called and praised the Lord. Holy is God the Lord of Sabbath. Holy is God the Lord of Sabaoth. Holy is God the Lord of Sabaoth. His glory fills the heavens and the earth. The beams and lintels trembled at the cry, and clouds of smoke enwrapped the throne on high. Wow, what awesome words, and I look forward to the day when we can sing that here in the congregation. Pastor, uh, with the time that we have left in our last segment, this is episode 28, and our entire episode we've looked at the Sanctus, we have the triumphal entry recorded for us, not only in Matthew 21 that we, we read in great detail, but it's also recorded for us in Mark, I believe it's Mark 11, and in John 12. Uh, John 12 is uh, generally the Palm Sunday procession that I like to have when we have the children and the procession of palms and all that because of what is emphasized here. Could I get you to read John 12? 12 to 19, because I think there's a, a little bit of an extra emphasis here in John 12. Uh, one last thing that we haven't covered yet. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. John 12 emphasizes why all the people were out on the road greeting Jesus as he made his triumphal entry into, Palm, uh, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This was not some accident. This was not some happenstance. You alluded to it very, very briefly earlier, Pastor, and I want you to expound on what in the world does Lazarus have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, and actually, I think, uh, I don't remember if it's in the one year or the three year, but there's one uh, time where the raising of Lazarus is a week or two before Easter in our scripture readings in the lectionary. And uh, it is very key. It happens, um, you know, a couple weeks before Jesus himself is killed and laid into a tomb. And Jesus goes to Bethany and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus walks up these stairs. You can still walk up and down them if you go and visit this place uh, of the tomb, and uh, he comes out of the tomb still wrapped up in the grave claws, and um, uh, the people see him there and uh, rejoice that he has been raised from the dead. This is after Lazarus should have already been... Um, raccoon on the side of the road in July, you know, bloated. Yeah, decomposing. Uh, not in good shape, but God still is able to bring him back together in the person of Jesus just by speaking his word. And that's a big deal because that's a sign that cannot be denied. It's a sign that reveals the reality of who Jesus is, the Son of God made flesh. And uh, that's why the... Um, Pharisees and the Sadducees finally have it in for Jesus, because if he's raising dead people, this is serious business that uh, we need to eliminate if we're going to maintain our power and authority here in Jerusalem. There was a plot, and we see that right at the end of chapter 11. There was a plot to kill Lazarus after Jesus had raised him from the dead. What's this plot all about? Well, um, <laughs> um, well, first of all, it's foolish. It is foolish, but um, uh, but it was real. If anyone knew where uh, Lazarus was, they were supposed to tell the Jews and the Pharisees so they could kill him because they don't want Lazarus pointing people to Jesus, saying, he raised me from the dead. And so the best way you can eliminate someone, and this is the mafia and the mob, and uh, even I think in a lot of other politics, you don't agree with somebody, you eliminate them. You assassinate either their character or the person themselves uh, so that they get out of the way of what you want to do in your own politics. And that's exactly what the, the Jews and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were wanting to do with Lazarus. So you have the crazy notion, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, so you got to get rid of the evidence, so let's kill him. Um, why didn't they think rationally that, well, if Jesus did it once, he could certainly do it again, right? Uh, th this whole plot just makes absolutely no rational, logical sense. And quite frankly, the attempts to 
uh, neutralize Jesus, the resurrection, the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, all of these meet the same fate, don't they? They do, and and Caiaphas, whenever we see him operating, he's always operating in fear, either of the Romans or of the people. We see this in Acts, we see it in the Gospels, we see it uh, in John 11. But I think the important thing that he says here, um, without even knowing what he's saying, is after Lazarus is raised, Caiaphas says, um, it is better for you that one man should die for all the people than that the whole nation should perish. He's exactly right, even though he sees it completely backwards uh, from how God sees it. That is, uh, that is the gift of the divine service. That is the gift of the Lord's Supper. That is the gift of the rhythm and flow and structure of the liturgy that we've been talking about. The Lord saves us. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thank you for tuning in to At Home in Your Hymnal. This is episode 28, the Sanctus. And when we come back with our next episodes, we're going to be getting into the reason and the placing of the Lord's Prayer in the words of institution, in the structure, rhythm, and flow of the liturgy. God's richest blessings until then.